I've already said that, so I'm sorry. I've said it again. I tend to say that quite a bit, even if it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Can you connect with this statement? There's nothing to eat in this house. Maybe you've said it many times yourself, or maybe you just hear it a lot in your household. You know those days when you're hungry, you want something to eat, you go to the fridge. Nothing. Close the fridge. Go to the pantry. Nothing that's appetizing. Yeah, there's food there, but there's nothing that's going to satisfy that craving that you have. So you go back to the fridge. Maybe you try the freezer this time. And then you open up the fridge again as though staring at it and staring at it is going to produce something you like. And you stand there for so long until the alarm, the energy-saving alarm, buzzes. And then, okay, forget it. Close the door. You suck it up and say, this meal is not going to be satisfying. So you just eat it. Um, and your hunger has been satisfied, but you're not satisfied. You go looking for something else because that specific need was not met through that meal. Maybe you go and you get some cookies or you get some chips, or maybe best of all, you go get your ice cream. But you know what? None of it, none of it fills you. So you just give up and say, you know what? This particular meal was not the greatest. But you have hope that the next one is going to be great. In our day-to-day -day life, we have a myriad of desi desires, and some of them are not met like the one I just gave you. But you know what? It's OK. There are others that, you that are fulfilled. How many desires are fulfilled for you that make you so happy that maybe you want to do your rendition of your happy dance, whatever it is, OK? Maybe you're asked out on a date by that person you had a crush on. Or maybe you get that promotion or that recognition you so badly wanted. Maybe you see your dream realized. Or maybe you just have that scrumptious meal that you've been waiting for. Maybe that gift that you so badly wanted is wrapped and it's underneath the Christmas tree. Those are times when our desires are fulfilled. And they bring a little explosion of joy into our hearts. And we feel so happy. And it would be great if we could bottle that excitement and that happiness and that joy and bring it out another time when we don't feel so great. But sadly, that's not the way it works. We have desires all the time. And some of them are small and trivial. And if they don't get met, well, we're disappointed, but we go on. Kind of like when you go to a potluck and there's one last donut, whatever it is that it is, and you've got your eye on that one, and you're just hoping you can get it. But before you get to the front of the line, somebody else has taken it. It's disappointing, but oh well, so what? You move on. And then there are other desires that if they're not fulfilled, you feel much more disappointed. And then still, there are some desires that are critical to being met, critical to our well-being if they're not met. They're they can have devastating effects on us. And Jesus knows this, and he addresses this very issue in the beatitude that we'll be looking at today. We'll be looking at Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. I have it before you on the screen in three different versions. And if you look at that, and you look at those red words, filled, satisfied, the best meal you'll ever have, you get a picture that comes together of something big, something very satisfying. 
And if I was to look at that and try to bring it all together, the big idea of what this verse is, I would say it would be this. God invites us to overflowing fulfillment. I think it's important to re repeat that. God invites us to overflowing fulfillment. So that's the big idea of our time together today. So I'd like you to repeat that because in a few minutes I might ask you again what it is. So what's the big idea for today? That's right. And as we begin exploring this invitation, I think the first thing to consider is that this is an invitation. It's not a command. You see, as we, we heard last week, Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God at this time. He's ushering it in through all the uh, things that he is doing, through the manifestations of his power in healing, to gathering his disciples, and to teaching. So just before the Sermon on the Mount starts, he has been going around and he's been healing people. And of course, this healing is attracting a lot of tension. So crowds are gathering. So at this point in time, he takes his disciple, goes up the mountain, and has a one-on-one -on -one with them. At this time, the Jewish people were living under Roman occupation. They had been under occupation for generations. Kingdoms come up and kingdoms come down. The powerful kingdoms, by the sheer might of their power, or their military power, whatever type of power they have, they overrun the others. They take away their autonomy. So the Jewish people were quite accustomed to not being able to exercise their whole autonomy. And here comes Jesus, ushering in a new kingdom. He's doing all these works. People may be wondering, wow, is this the Messiah? Is this the time we're finally going to get rid of these enemies upon us? And in their mind, they're probably thinking a powerful kingdom, a kingdom that's going to overtake the Roman Empire. Maybe some of them are thinking, oh yeah, he's going up there with his disciples. He's probably working on a strategy to overtake these Romans. But that's not the kingdom that God is ushering in. He's inviting. He's not saying, thou shalt seek after righteousness. He's inviting us to come. He's inviting them. So we learn from this that the kingdom of God is gentle. There was a time when a rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turned to him and said, go, sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And that rich young ruler left away, went away very sad. There was another time when Jesus was approaching the end of his life here on earth and he came to Jerusalem and he looked over it and he wept. He wept over Jerusalem because he was heartbroken for he could see the future of Jerusalem. He knew that Jerusalem had rejected him. He wasn't forcing Jerusalem to come and follow him, but he was weeping. And that's the way it is to, uh, for us today. Jesus does not drag us kicking and screaming into his kingdom. He gently invites and he respects our autonomy. So Jesus is inviting us into this fulfillment. So our job today is to consider this invitation and how are we going to respond to it? And choosing not to respond is rejecting the invitation. So let's jump right in and look at this invitation. 
let's look at, uh, we're going to start with, let's look at, at our need for food and drink. Think about it. On an average week, how much time, energy, resources do you put into the act of eating and drinking? Okay, first of all, there's the mental energy. What are we going to have to eat this week? Planning the meals, all that kind of stuff. Then there's the beautiful, beautiful chore that I just love so much, grocery shopping. I know we all hate that. And you know, even if you're tired, you've come home from work and you're exhausted, as little as you want to go to that grocery store, you go, because you need to get the food. And then there's bringing it home, there's putting it away, then there is uh, the meal preparation, and then finally comes the time that you get to sit down and eat. And that takes like five, seven minutes. Somehow it doesn't seem fair. Two hours to prepare, seven minutes to eat, and then another 45 minutes to clean up. Somehow, there isn't fairness in that equation, but that's the way life is. But what happens if we choose not to do that, and we're not going to eat, and we're not going to drink? Well, it's simple. We're going to die. You can last 8 to 21 days without food, and 3 days without water. So it makes sense that we put that much energy, that much thought, that many resources, into eating and drinking. Jesus could have said, blessed are those who seek after righteousness. But instead, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. The term hunger and thirst implies a deep longing, a prioritizing, a focus, and an energy. But food is not all we hunger after. Jesus is asking his audience as he asks this, Take stock of what you hunger for. So as he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, if you reflect on that, there's another hidden question. If you're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, okay, what are you hungering and thirsting after? And we do. We do hunger and thirst after many things. And as we said in our examples at the beginning, some of them are small, and if we don't get them, that's okay, but some of them are really critical and they make up the core of who we are. There we go, okay, that works now. Some of the critical needs in our lives that need fulfilling, the need for acceptance, unconditional acceptance, the need for love, the need for security, the need for validation, the need for belonging. And these needs start from the first breath we take to the last breath we take. It extends over our entire lifetime. And in our quest to satisfy these needs, we may run after many things. Many, many things. And sometimes we don't even know what we're looking after, but we're chasing things trying to fulfill it. Just like in that, that kitchen, when you go to the fridge and you go to the pantry, you come back to the fridge, there's something that's just not right in the depth of who you are. Something is not fulfilled, and you're trying to get what it is. So as we further look into this invitation that Jesus gives us, I want to think about three questions. Okay, do you remember what our big picture is? Jesus invites us to overwhelming fulfillment. So let's look at overwhelming fulfillment. 
So we're going to consider three questions. What does overflowing fulfillment look like? And how does this affect my everyday life? And as a follower of Jesus, how does this enable me to impact the world with Jesus' love? And in order to do that, we're going to look at the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. The scripture verse that was read to us this morning. John chapter 4, verses 4 to 26. When you first read this and you first see the image there, first thing you may notice is that there are some paths. This takes place when Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem to Capernaum. And he decides that he wants to go through Samaria. I'll have you know that that was not one of the most common routes because Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. So they would have most likely chosen other routes, but not on this day. Jesus is purposeful and he's going through Samaria. And he and disciples are walking along. And when he gets there, it's about noon, he sits at this well and he sends his disciple into town. Well, did you ever wonder why didn't Jesus just, just go with them? They were traveling as a group for hours. Now all of a sudden he sits at this well and he says, you guys go in and get food. Why? There was a definite reason. Jesus was very purposeful about what he was doing. Along comes a woman, and she's coming to get water. Now, on the surface, this looks like a very, very ordinary, typical image, not even worth writing about. But this image is anything but ordinary. This woman is coming to get her water, fill it up, and go home to do her chores. Think for a second. How, much, how many times a day do you turn on a tap? Now, think for another second. What if we didn't have plumbing, indoor plumbing? You would realize how important it is to go and get the water every day, bring it home, to meet all those needs for every time we turn on a tap. So this is what she's doing. And as she's approaching the well, she's probably thinking to herself, you know, what do I need to cook tonight, or this or that, whatever she was thinking. And she sees this man sitting by on the well. She's probably thinking she's not going to exchange a single word with him. She's going to fill her jug, and she goes home. Let's look at another story in Scripture with a similar picture. Exodus chapter 2. In this scene, Abraham tells his uh, servant, go and find a wife for my son Isaac to marry. So the servant goes to the hometown of where Abraham came from, and he gets there, and he sits by the well. And a group of women come by, and they're filling up their jugs. And he approaches one, Rebecca, and he asks her for water. And her immediate response is, sure, and I'll fill up uh, for your uh, camels as well. You see, Middle Eastern hospitality was a major major value, and it still is to this day. In those days, you would never, ever say no to a stranger who's walking and asking for food or drink or accommodation. It was unheard of because people were so hospitable. But yet, when we uh, reach uh, this woman and Jesus, that's not the way she responds. She responds with the question, you, you're asking me for water? There was so much hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews that she wouldn't have expected him to speak to her. She did not give him the normal greeting 
or the normal response that would have been in that time. And that goes to show how Jesus was so intentional about going to her. You see, he's not sitting at the well because he's lazy and he wants to send his disciples for food while he takes a break. He's there because he has come to invite this woman to overflowing fulfillment. There's another time in scripture when you see women coming to a well. And that takes place, oh, I'm so sorry. I gave you the wrong reference. The previous one was in Genesis. This one is in Exodus too. Moses is out in the desert and there's a priest of Midian who had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs of water for their father's flock. And there were some shepherds there who came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered the flocks. So what's happening here? A group of women are coming to the water and there's a group of men there and they're harassing them. Moses stands up and says, basically, get lost guys and allows the women to get their water. There's something else in here. When we come back to the story of the woman in the well, she's not with the group. She's totally alone. Okay, why did women come in groups? Well, for a few reasons. As the story in Exodus shows us, there could have been a safety element. But also, it was, the, it was convenient for those times of day. Usually they came in the morning or maybe later on in the afternoon. But no one would come at 12 o'clock because that's too hot. It's, it's not the time that they would come. And it was, also, it was also a natural place where women would meet because women in this society did not really operate outside the home. So outside the home, this was one of the few places where women would meet, was at the daily trek to the well. So they would get there, hey, Sarah, hi, so-and-so, how are you doing? How's your son doing? That type of conversation. They would talk to each other, they would share information, and sadly, probably there would be some gossip going around. So why is this woman at the well not going with the other women? Well, that's because this woman was not your upstanding citizen. Yes, she had a very, very dark history. She had been with many men, and the man, that she is, the man she is right now is not her husband. So the, the town has rejected her. She's an outcast. She's shamed, and she knows it. Why would she want to go to the well when, when she gets there, that, that shame that's in her just wells up. It's reinforced that she's a nobody, that she's an outsider, that she's so bad she doesn't fit into society. You could understand why she would come at noon. So picture the scene, a lonely, despised woman going through the motions of everyday life, collecting water. She's adjusting her routines to avoid the negativity, so she collects the water on her own. She's looking for things to fill those needs in her heart, but nothing is, nothing is meeting it. She's been looking for ways to meet those needs through all the men that she's had. And instead of meeting those needs, she gets pain, rejection, and shame. Jesus continues to speak to her. And as they speak, she's getting drawn into him. She's asking questions. He's answering them. And then he finally reveals to her, I am the Messiah. So if I was to put this whole scene into my own words, I would say, this is what Jesus is saying to her. Dear woman, you have made choices that have resulted in you feeling isolated and rejected. You are desperately thirsty for affection, for validation of your self-worth, for companionship, and for forgiveness. Yet your daily trek for physical water does not meet your need. 
the man you now live, live with, who is not your husband, is not going to fill your need. Jesus used her physical need of water as a springboard to reveal to her a much deeper need, a need of her soul. And Jesus was saying to you, I can fill your need. I will give you living water that will satisfy your soul. And here's another image. There you go. Sorry about that, but this seems to be a little bit slow today. Here's a beautiful image of uh, what it appears to me, what God is offering to her. Now, I hope that this never, ever happens in your house. But I want you for a second to imagine that the bathtub is you. You are that bathtub. And this is what Jesus wants to give to your soul. Not just a little bit of water. Not just to the brim. Overflowing. All those disparate needs of the core of who you are, the needs of your soul, the needs that only come out at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're lying down in your bed with your tears in your eyes that you can't express to anybody. Those needs that no one around you can meet, he's going to meet them. But he's not just going to meet them. It's going to be met with overflowing fulfillment. Okay? And if you are that bathtub and you are overflowing with this water, what's happening? Naturally, the water is overflowing. Naturally, the floor around is all wet. Naturally, the, f the apartment below is going to get all wet. Basically, everyone you encounter is going to experience that love that's flowing out of you. So we're going to back up a bit, and we're going to go over our three questions. If this works. So what does overflowing fulfillment looks like? Matthew said to her, sorry, Jesus said to her in Matthew, Jesus tells the woman, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Just like that image. Okay, our second question. Does anybody still remember our big picture? Jesus invites us to overflowing fulfillment. Our first question what does this overflowing fulfillment look like? There's a beautiful image. How does this touch my everyday life? She left her water jug behind. Did you get that? She left that water jug behind. That water jug was not just a water jug. That was the source of everything she needed to do for that day. Like, if she's going to go home and cook, she needs that water. If she's going to go home and wash dishes, she needs that water. If something needs to be washed, she needs that water. That water was crucial for all the activities she had to do that day. And she leaves it behind. The time that she spent with Jesus, as he drew her in, it's not that he condoned her sin, but how different was his treatment to the treatment of the others in the village? They rejected her. They shunned her. He didn't condemn her. He gave her forgiveness. And this made all the difference. All of a sudden, that extremely important jug that she came there for was not as important. So what Jesus gives to us is more important than our busy schedules. It's more important than our very important work. It's more important than wealth and position. And anything we're striving for cannot compare to that wealth, 
that Jesus gives to us. It was so important that the very purpose of why she came to that well suddenly was irrelevant, and she left the jug behind. Now we know that life goes on, so she eventually probably came back to get that jug. Yes, we acknowledge that. But that moment when her needs were met, the things of this life didn't matter anymore. The love that Jesus gave to her in that moment superseded. And our third question that we're considering today is as a follower of Jesus, how does that enable me to impact the world with Jesus' love? Okay, so where did this woman go? She leaves her jug, she goes directly into town. Let's back up a bit. Remember, it's noon, it's high noon, she's coming alone, she's avoiding the crowds, and now she's going directly into the crowds. She's going directly into the core of the place where she feels so much shame, where the villagers shame her because of her past experience. She's going there. What's taking place here? The shame that she has has been washed away and replaced with that confidence that Jesus gives. She goes into town and she says, she doesn't hide her fact of her past. She says, I've met a man who's told me all that I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And of course, that sparks, sparks a lot of curiosity and people come and they hear Jesus for himself and they too accept that overflowing fulfillment. So how does this overflowing fulfillment affect our ability to reach the world with Christ's love? Again, we go back to that bathtub. It overflows. But if we fill our bathtub with other things, we can't get the water in there. We need to empty out that bathtub so that Jesus can fulfill us. So we've talked a lot about the, uh, very many things this morning. Let's do a little recap. Our big picture, Jesus, all of us together, invites us to overflowing fulfillment. It affects our everyday life. It affects the way we go out and touch this world with Christ's love. But there's one part we haven't talked about yet this morning, and that's the part about righteousness. Again, I'm going to give you another image. Sometimes we look at righteousness like this, like a tree, a tree that produces very, very good food, fruit, sorry. And if you look at this image, you can say, yeah, that describes righteousness. That's pretty good. However, I would say to you that this is not a complete picture. If you look at just the fruit of righteousness, there's three things that can happen that are dangerous. And believe me, the three questions and now the three dangers have nothing to do with being planned. It just happened that way. If we look at the fruit of, that, of righteousness alone, first thing that can happen is we can become discouraged and disillusioned. And anybody who's worked so hard to fight against injustice will know this. Because although people may talk and say, yes, that's great, let's do it, let's do it, yes, equity is what we want, fairness is what we want, and when you try to implement it, there's one roadblock after another. You can become so disillusioned that you give up. Another danger that happens if you look at just the fruit of righteousness is that we can develop a works-orientated faith. Come on, guys, let's go, let's go. Got to try harder, got to do this for Jesus. Let's go, let's go out and do this. And it becomes about us and not about Jesus. The third danger that can happen if we're looking at just the righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, is that we can become self-righteous. And self-righteous is the absolute opposite 
of, of uh, seeking and thirsting after righteousness. We can develop rules to live by, checklists. Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty righteous. I go to church. I get involved in church activity. I give my money. I even fill shoeboxes at Christmas. You know, I'm pretty good. And I live like a decent person. And if that happens, we can fall into a danger. And I would say that it is possible to live an outwardly righteous life without hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, I think that one is also important to repeat, so I'm going to repeat it. It's possible to live an outwardly righteous life without hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We have to look at the complete picture of what righteousness is. And in this picture, we have Jesus. As the roots stabilize that tree and seek out moisture and nutrients from the soil to feed the tree so that the tree can produce the fruit, so Jesus does the same for us. He can stabilize us. And it's him that's running through the, the roots that give us the fruit of righteousness. It is Jesus, our righteousness, because our own righteousness, number one, will never measure up. Never, ever measure up. Even our greatest acts, if we're very brutally honest with ourselves, somewhere along the line, we find some little area of selfishness in there. When we talk about a holy God, our righteousness will never measure up to the holiness of God. Jesus is our righteousness. It is Jesus that we need to hunger and thirst after. So if we said, going back to our verse that we're considering, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, another way of saying it would be, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God. And I've got a few examples for you in the Bible. Let's go back to Abraham. Abraham really wanted a child. And God promised him, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you such a great nation. That nation is going to be so big, it's going to be as big as the stars in the sky. You won't be able to count people. And Abraham followed God and believed God and trusted God. Only problem was that Abraham didn't have any children. None. Zero. And throughout his life and Sarah's life together, they made some mistakes along the way in trying to hang on to this promise, trying to so much anticipate anticipate the fulfilling of this promise because remember, they really wanted that child and that child wasn't coming. So at one point, God, is, uh, God and Abraham ha are having this conversation and this is what God says to Abraham. I am your great reward. So in other words, God could say, Abraham, I know you want that child. I know you have difficulty comprehending how I can promise you a nation without you having a single child. I know this sounds impossible to your ears. Abraham, look at me. I am your great reward, not the promised son. I'm going to definitely give you a son, Abraham, but that son is not going to satisfy you wholly. I am the one who's going to satisfy you wholly. There's another example I'd like to take you in scripture to talk about this fulfillment that Jesus gives to us, and that's Jesus himself. When Jesus came to this earth, he set aside his deity and he became human. 
So as a human, he experienced the things that we experience. So here he is. This is he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the absolute worst moment of Jesus' life. He's feeling the weight and the crush of the sin of the world upon him. He knows what's coming, and it is almost too much to bear for his human frame. And he even asks God, if it's your will, please let this pass for me. So you can understand how hard it must for him at this moment. And at his moment, his need for connection and his need for comfort from his friends was great. So he sought after that. And what happened? Well, they all fell asleep. They were not able to help him in his time of greatest need. And what does Jesus say at this time? He says, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. At Jesus' most crucial, most difficult time of his life, he was able to find comfort from God. For me, this happened in July of 2020. I was sitting at home, madly working on my computer. I was actually working on a research paper for my ordination. And I was all alone at home because my family was somewhere. I can't remember where they were, but they were somewhere. And then I get a video call from my doctor. And I'm looking at her, I'm looking at her face, and she's looking at me, and she says to me, we need to look at this. It looks like cancer. Well, you could imagine, suddenly that document that I was working on, my research paper that was so important, was absolutely useless to me. Because the thoughts that were coming through my mind, am I even going to be alive for my ordination exam? It was a difficult time. And a few days later, after this news that I received, my two daughters said to me, hey, let's go somewhere. We went to the city of Guelph. I won't give you the backstory about why we chose Guelph, but we went to Guelph. And there's a beautiful little coffee shop that we love in Guelph, and we went there, and we went for a hike. And I took my camera, because I'm a wannabe photographer. I'm definitely not a photographer. And I knew it was going on. I knew it. I knew that my two daughters were desperately trying to cheer me up. And I appreciated so much their efforts and their love. But as I stood there with them, eating this ice cream by the water, I realized every effort that they're making is not doing it. It's not touching the anxiety that's welling up in me. The fear of the future, the fear of the unknown. What kind of cancer? Is it terminal? How long am I going to live? They couldn't meet that need. So that day passed, and the next day, or maybe even that same day later on in the evening, I was sitting in my backyard, I love my backyard, and I was sitting there and I was talking to God. And I was having a quiet moment with God. And then I heard his words speak to my soul, deep, deep to my soul. Not audible, but I knew it was God. And you know what he said to me? He said, don't be afraid. Suddenly, that met that anxiety need. And I recognize that many of you have had similar walks. And for you, the end result was not the same. But I trust that you also have experienced the comfort that God gives. That comfort when he speaks to that need that no one else can meet. You realize how loving he is, how much he is enough for us. Not only is he enough for us to meet our every need, He's enough that he overflows us, that we can spread that love to the people around us. We need to seek him above all else. Not just for the blessings he gives us. Sometimes people follow Jesus for the blessings. 
because God gives me a job, because God always gives me that perfect parking spot. But do we follow Jesus for who he is, even if our prayers are not answered, even if our dreams are not realized? God is worth following. He is enough. He's more than enough for all our needs. So we circle back. We come back to our invitation. What's our big picture? God invites us. Uh, I think we can do better than that. Let's try it again. God invites us. Remember, it's an invitation. We've looked at three big questions. How does this, what does this look like? How does it affect my life? And what does it mean to reach the world with Jesus' love? It's an invitation. If you get a wedding invitation, there's an RSVP, and you need, to, you need to respond to it. So my last question for you is, eventually our last question will come, how will you RSVP to Jesus today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are enough for us. Open up our hearts to go deep into who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.